Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Karen Hardy, and welcome to Flip This Risk Podcast, where we interview high achievers to find out what their relationship is with risk-taking, or smart risk-taking, if anything else. Today, my guest is Dr. Paul Goffrey. He is the uh, professor of business strategy at Brigham Young University, one of the founding partners of Strategic Risk Insights. And he's also one of the authors of Strategic Risk Management, New Tools for Competitive Advantage in an Uncertain Age. I want to remind my audience that you can follow us on at uh, flipthisrisk.tv and also Flip This Risk TV Network on YouTube. Subscribe today, we we'll really appreciate it. So welcome Dr. Goffrey to the show. Thanks, Karen. Glad to be here. Fantastic. You know, we've been trying to schedule this uh, this interview for some time, and I'm glad that we're able to connect today to talk about what I think and what you probably believe is one of the most important um, aspects of risk management today, cutting across any industry, any organization. And I think it's a um, discipline and competency that really needs to be, uh, more attention need to be paid to it. But before I dive into that, the subject of the strategic risk management piece, I'm a little curious to know, you know, being a very successful uh, professor of business, business strategy at Brigham Young University, was strategy always on your mind growing up? Is that, how did you get into strategy? So I think, um, I think being an academic was always on my mind growing mm-hmm. up. Um, just I loved school, I loved education, and I loved the process of, uh, of learning. And when I was a graduate student getting my MBA, uh, I did a job interview and the person asked me what I liked. And I said, well, I love to teach, I love to learn, and I love to write. And then just like a light went on in my head, well, that's what professors do. They mm-hmm. teach other people, they're constantly learning, and they're writing a lot. Um, strategy, I think, evolved a little bit. Um, I was, uh, as, a, as an undergraduate student, I was president of a fraternity, so I dealt with the position of a head of an organization. My first job out of college was a general manager for a Taco Bell restaurant, so I yeah, ran wonderful. the entire operation and sort of got a strategic view pretty early in my career. And I've just naturally gravitated towards these issues about uh, how do we win as an organization? How do we win over the long term? How do we think about things beyond just day-to-day operations? And how do we really position our company to win over time? Excellent, I love that story. But you know, even uh, within these big organizations, your, your experience and expertise looking inside the guts of the organization from a strategic point of view, you personally, what personal strategies have you used um, in your own life that have really paid off? Well, I think, the, um, I think the biggest strategy that I use is to always ask myself, where will this lead, not just tomorrow, but next year or five years? And, you know, if I'm at point A, so can I clearly define a point B three to five years in the future where I'd like to be? And then how do I connect the dots? Because um, strategy is more than just that goal of saying, I want to get to B. Strategy is about connecting the dots between A and B. Uh, what do I have to learn? What investments do I need to make? 
um, in my own skills, but also in uh, in hardware or software or other physical assets. Um, do I need to move? You know, who do I need to network with? Um, strategy at its core is about how we allocate our resources to achieve our goals. And so for me, I think it's having a set of long-term goals um, and those should always be value and passion driven. You know, a goal about, uh, I wanna reach a certain income level within five years. To me, that's not a goal that excites me. Um, a goal to make a difference in the lives of my students um, is a nice long-term goal that translates into what I do every day in terms of how do I then, what do I need to be learning? You know, what do I need to change what I'm doing in order to become more valuable in the lives of my students? And so if you have a passion-driven goal and then you ask yourself, what investments do I need to make over the next three, six, nine months in order to move me toward my passion-driven goal? That I think is the key to, to effective personal strategy. That is awesome. So what are some, what are some of the biz, biggest risks you've ever taken yourself? Um, well, I think the biggest risk that I ever took was to go back to get a PhD mm -hmm. um, because I was finishing my MBA degree and the, your, your listeners might appreciate this story. So, you know, the job interview I told you about where I told the lady I like to teach, learn and write, um, that was on a Thursday and on Friday night, my wife of about, uh, we had been married about six months or seven months by that time. And she was uh, pregnant and we were expecting mm -hmm. our first child. And she was pretty excited for me to graduate from the MBA program um, and go work and earn some money. And we went to a Chinese takeout place and sat in the car and I said, uh, Robin, what would you think? if I stayed and got a PhD. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, she's incredibly supportive and a great person. And she said, well, that would be great if you think that's really what you want to do and that will, you know, make us happy and get us where we, we feel we want to be. Um, so, you know, that was probably the biggest single risk I ever mm -hmm. took. Um, going back to get a PhD in the midst of, you know, newly married, a child on the way. Um, and there were, there were times when it was a real challenge. Um, yeah. You know, we lived on, we were telling one of our kids the other night, you know, we used to, the day old bread store was our friend. Yeah. Um, right. Those last couple of years of the PhD. And um, you never know how it's, when you're writing a dissertation, you never know until the end if it's gonna turn out. So right. it was living with risk and uncertainty. Um, but it was a it was a calculated risk, and it turned out to be be wonderful in terms of you know economically we do all right, but I get to do something I really love, and I get to continually learn. So that was a big risk I took early on that really paid off. You know, I love the conversations that you engaged in with your, your with your family and wife to come up with a solution in terms of is this the right decision to make? Do you find that a lot of companies also engage in this type of conversation when they're taking, you know, looking at the risk or the strategies they're trying to set within the organization? What has been your experience? So, you know, the, a lot of the companies that I work with, I don't think do as well as they should. 
you know, the, a lot of times the overriding question is, how will this play out over the next three months? Mm -hmm. How will this play out in this quarter's earnings, in this, um, in the next two or three quarters? And really good companies start asking the questions, number one, is what we're thinking about, is it consistent with our mission? Is it who we want to be? And then number two, they start to ask, if we go down this road, will we be in a position that will really create value for our customers over the long term, that will um, be, a, be a great place for our organization to grow and thrive? And will it be sustainable? You know, mm -hmm. can we keep it going over a number of years so that the investment actually has time to pay off? So some companies do, but unfortunately, far too many organizations and companies are concerned about quarterly profits. Uh, government organizations are concerned about next year's budget cycle. Um, there's a, there are so many short-term pressures that crowd in on us that it's easy to not think strategically. You know, in this current space and time that we're, you know, experiencing a crisis now, it's easy to see some, to see who some of the winners and the losers are, in terms of strategy working over a sustained period of time. Can you talk a little bit about uh, an example of a company that has done strategic risk management well, and then we'll talk about a company that has not, but could have. Um, so in this particular crisis, the, the companies that come to mind um, that, are, that are doing very well, so there's a really interesting play going on in the airline industry right now. Um, American Airlines has chosen to fly lots of flights and, and in the hope that they will um, become attractive to customers flying now and they'll gain market share later. Delta Airlines, on the other hand, has said, well, we think the wisest course of action right now is to pull back um, because there is so much uncertainty. Um, and that's one of the key drivers of strategic risk. So we talk about four drivers. You know, we live in a more volatile world. So mm -hmm. just, a, just a quick data point. If you look at the 10 most volatile lost days in the stock market, two of those have happened in 2020. So that's over 100 plus years of stock performance. Two of the most volatile days have happened this year alone. Uh, uncertainty, nobody yeah. knows. Every day we're learning about how long COVID-19 might actually be with us. I think right. when we started in March, many of us thought, ah, yeah, we'll be out for a couple of weeks and then everything will get back to normal. Yes. And then we thought in June, hey, everything will get back to normal. And now in July, we're sort of thinking, will there be football? Right, um, right. Because um, it's so totally uncertain. It's incredibly complex. There is nothing more complex than running a global airline in terms of scheduling thousands of flights, hundreds of workers, hundreds of airplanes. Um, and you're not really sure what the what the data really mean, what, you know, ambiguity. So uh, what does it mean when people transfer to a lower load flight? Does it mean they're really concerned about um, COVID-19? Or does it mean they just want more leg space? So, you know, you, you can see, and, and this is sort of live, and I wish I could tell you American's gonna win or Delta's gonna win, but this is two companies taking a very different approach to managing strategic uncertainty right now. Delta that's decided to pull back and wait for more information, and American that's decided to 
to forge ahead and see what happens. So, so we'll have to wait um, and see how these companies, how these two things turn out. Um, I think companies that haven't done very well, uh, you can think about a couple of them. I think Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, um, some of the people who applied for PPP loans and didn't really think about the broader strategic societal context of well, what happens when a major corporation applies for a PPP loan that's targeted towards small businesses. And I think some companies weren't thinking enough about their long-term reputation. And so they took some hits by acting in some very short-sighted ways. So you, you mentioned uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity. So let's talk about one of the examples you actually gave in the book. You mentioned Lego and as a good example, correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and everyone knows that the Lego brand is very well known. So what is it about Lego in terms of using strategic risk management that makes them set them apart from other organizations? Well, what Lego did was historically, the risk function had been backward looking, sort of did we hit all the metrics? Did we hit all the marks? And it was very operational, sort of how do we get the, the right color? You know, what's the risk of getting the wrong color red paint in a batch of, uh, of little Lego bricks? When Hans Lose came along, the company was, was trying to grow and they were trying to expand into new markets, China and the United States. And remember, this is back in 2008 and 2009 when there's the Great Recession going on and there's a lot of uncertainty about will consumers buy new toys, will they, will they move in new markets. Um, and what Lose did and his group did was they moved from looking back and sort of being compliance and operationally focused to saying, how can the tools of risk management, so scenario planning, advanced financial modeling, um, really seriously mapping risks in a forward thinking way, how can we help the company think about how we went in China and the United States? Um, what are the lessons that we don't wanna to have to learn through sad experience that we could have looked and said, well, there's a risk here about um, customers adopting hand toys when the internet is becoming, you know, put together toys when the internet's becoming so popular and everyone wants to play online. So let's say in his group helped strategic managers think through how do we mitigate some of those known risks mm -hmm. and how do we how do we scope key uncertainties? How do we use scenario planning, for example, to think about what are potential outcomes and how can we prepare ourselves for any of those outcomes? So Lego is a company I think that did it well. And if I'm a company today, I'm gonna think a lot about scenario planning over the next two to three years. Um, what happens if there's a vaccine that comes out, but the vaccine is only 30% effective? Um, what, what, that's one particular scenario. You know, what happens if, um, if the technological advances, like you and I are doing this Zoom conference, well, you know, eight months ago, we never would have done it this way because we didn't have any idea of how powerful this tool was. That's right. Well, will this become, will this become the new way that we work? And we all just log on to our computers in the morning. You know, will that be a rapid advance or will it be a slow advance? And companies can think about using scenario planning as a great tool to help them think about not 
how will the world turn out? Because we've all been wrong on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading right, we a, have. <laughs> a McKinsey and Company report in early March that said maybe there will be 40,000 cases in the United States. <laughs> uh, well, we were definitely wrong on that one. But that's what predictions are for, for the, for the most part, right? To give us a right. sense, to give us a sense when that really sure or arranged, but at least there was some uh, indication that there's some some there should be some concern at least yeah. but i can i can help but think though when you're talking about lego and using scenario analysis because they had the thought the mindset to think that you know we need to think about how the the internet and online um uh commerce is going to change our business model for the most part why mm-hmm. didn't toys r us get the same email on this what happened they were in the same industry in a sense, right? You know, they were in the same industry, but I, I think Toys R Us, um, I, and I don't know, I haven't studied deeply Toys R Us, but okay. I shopped there a whole lot. Um, <laughs> a lot of us did. <laughs> I shopped there a whole lot. And, and one of the things was that a lot of the things, so what I did see Toys R Us move from was they were pretty successful in the first wave of electronic gaming when it moved from playing with a Batman action figure to loading up a Batman CD in your, what, Sony PlayStation or Nintendo 64, you know, um, Toys R Us did okay there. What you saw them do was transition by changing their store footprint to include a lot more electronic gaming. What they were completely unprepared for and of course, what Blockbuster Video, if you remember that famous company, I, I was completely unprepared for was what happened when it stopped shifting from put toys together to play on a computer to now streaming. And the problem with streaming was that it no longer made sense to have a physical presence at all. And so uh, one of the risks that Toys R Us took So in the pre-internet age, having a toy store where you could get everything from bikes to Batmans to balls to everything was very, very appealing. And that sort of discount toy warehouse model, Mm -hmm. but all of those investments in footprint became really a liability when all of a sudden streaming and streaming capability improved and people started playing games online. And lo and behold, it was more fun to play a, what do they call them? Multiplayer action role play game. Yeah, right. um, so gamers. people like Toys R Us, they'd made a lot of investments in physical infrastructure that over a period of about 18 months became obsolete and they were just unable to, to transition. <laughs> The last one has to do with uh, a a company I thought would be part of our culture forever, and that's Borders, of course. Any thoughts you you have about them? So I was really sad to see Borders go because um, I love books. I'm not an e-book reader. I'm not an online reader. I'm a sit down with a physical copy of a book and enjoy turning the pages and marking the pages. You know, again, what killed Borders was um, they started out in Ann Arbor, Michigan as a single store. And then again, having a large footprint really mattered. Um, And then 
Amazon came along and ebooks came along and, and did sort of two things. You know, one is, um, and I fell victim to this myself, if I didn't have time to go to Borders, I could order on Amazon and two days later it was there. Um, and you know, the margins in retail book selling aren't huge, so you see the, uh, the a decline of maybe two or three uh, percent or, or five or ten percent of your sales, and that's going to turn you from the black to the red, partly because you're paying for a lot of fixed infrastructure. You know, you're paying to lease all those stores, you're carrying all that book inventory. Mm-hmm. And um, so again, borders, so there, there are two things, and we talk about this in the book a little bit, there are the risks to your strategy, but then there are the risks of your strategy. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a Toys R Us or a Borders and your strategy is large scale, high volume, big footprint, certainly there are risks to that strategy, but there are also risks of it, that you've made heavy fixed investments, that anything that makes those fixed investments obsolete is going to be a real killer to you. You know, this these seems like obvious, you know, um, competencies and skills that every corporation company should have. It, it, this is sound like it's something that's optional, especially when you're running these companies. And I don't want to give the impression that this is just for big companies. Yeah. It's for any business who is in the market capturing, you know, customers and clients and trying to remain relevant over time. Right. So, I mean, it seems to me there's a gap in terms of the leadership mindset when coming in, in terms of what is their philosophy about business strategy before they even get there. We early on, we talked about your relationship with risk taking, your understanding of strategy. And really that, that doesn't leave you because you're leading, leading an organization. Right. So I think one of the couple of things here that, that we talk a little bit about in the book, um, but, but one of them is just what, what got the four of us together to write the book was my colleagues had been doing work in risk for a quarter century each. And what they found is that risk managers really wanted a seat at the strategy table, but risk managers didn't know the language of strategy. They didn't know how to think about forward thinking uncertainty and how do we model for that. Mm-hmm. My, as a strategist, my problem was people who are making strategy aren't thinking about risk. They're becoming enamored with their own ideas. They're not running multiple sets of analyses. They're sort of saying, if we, you know, the old line from uh, Field of Dreams, if we build it, they will they come. Right. Uh, and so, so we have a couple of problems as human beings and as organizations. You know, one is we're all enamored with our own ideas. We think Absolutely. that they're all going to succeed. And so it's easy for us to discount risks, even the ones we know about. Well, that'll never happen to us. Why? Because we're smart. We're smarter than the average bear. And the other one, organizationally, um, there's a principle that, that Herb Simon, who won the Nobel Prize, he and James March figured out called uncertainty absorption. And what it means is that decision makers don't want to make random bets. They want to make bets on what they think is going to happen. So at every layer, you know, you start out with at the, the bottom of the organization where people are saying, hey, this might work. There's seven different technologies out there that are, that are viable. 
Well, as that moves up the hierarchy, that seven becomes six and that six becomes five because we don't want uncertainty. And by the time the people in the executive suite are getting it, there's maybe two technologies to choose from and we're pretty darn sure that either one of these two are gonna be the, the only one that survives. And we actually think there's a favorite. And so what we've done is absorb all the uncertainty, all the real strategic risk that's in the marketplace and our organizational processes that want to give decision makers sort of clear options where they say yes or no, it filters out all that uncertainty. So when you put those two things together, our own belief in our own greatness and our willingness to, um, uh, to reduce uncertainty um, by hook or by crook, it means that unfortunately a lot of organizations aren't thinking about strategic risks. They aren't thinking about all of the things that could go right or go wrong. They're focused on a very, on a clear point solution that they think is gonna work. That is excellent. So the difference between a, a company or organization that does strategic risk management versus one that does not, what is the difference in outcome? What's the benefit? What, what changes as a result of it? So I think that, um, so I'd, lo I'd love to say, well, companies that do strategic risk management are always gonna win, but that's never guaranteed. But I think what they're going to do is they're gonna wake up with far fewer surprises. So at the beginning of 2020, and this is like ancient history now, in yes. January, um, Allianz Insurance, the major German insurance provider, came out and said that number one risk for your organization this year is cyber risk. Boy, doesn't that just sound so dated now? Yes, um, but, it does. But I, but I read that and I thought about, okay, if I'm an executive, and I'm waking up on January 2nd of 2020 and I'm thinking, oh, cyber risk. Boy, I better see what my organization's doing around cyber risk. You know, if you were smart, you started thinking about cyber risk in 1995, when your kid would log on to your computer and start playing games and you realized, oh my gosh, I've got all my financial files there and my yeah. kid playing computer games. So. You know, companies that think about these long-term uncertainties and how they're evolving, at the very best, they're not gonna, at the very least, they're not gonna be surprised. At right. the very best, they're gonna say, how do we turn this potential threat into an opportunity? Mm -hmm. So let's think about a big one that's coming down the road and it's obscured by COVID, but let's think about driverless cars. Mm -hmm. If I own parking lots, big parking lot company is Amco, A-M-P-C-O. They own lots of parking lots around the country. Well, think about what happens if the number of vehicles coming into the city declines by one third to 50%. That means all that space that I've got going on uh, is just gonna be worthless. Yeah. You know, so if I'm Amco parking right now, I'm starting to think about where are my prime pieces of real estate and do I want to sell those to developers and start scaling back yeah. the number of parking spaces that I have so I so I don't wake up 10 years from now and go, oh my gosh, my parking lots aren't worth anything 
because it's just empty real estate now and nobody will pay me a premium price. So I think that that's where companies that manage strategic risks really well come out ahead of companies that don't. Absolutely. That, that's a, a perfect uh, picture that you paint and in terms of, you know, unloading your portfolios. And I think we could think of so many conversations and industries where that is happening now. This has definitely been a wake up call for everyone, for right. risk professionals such as myself, academics such as right. yourself. We're seeing some things that we've, you know, uh, preaching to the choir. A lot of risk professionals have been trying to tell their leadership, but sometimes the lesson is still right. the same. You know, you have to go through some things to. Yeah, and even small companies. So uh, right. I was talking to a smaller company um, about two weeks ago. And they said, you know, one of the issues that we're struggling with right now is we've got this lease that we're ready to sign on a bunch of new office space because our company's growing and we're expanding. And, you know, and, and finally, about June, somebody says, wait a minute, do we really need more office space? You know, so, so this isn't your, your, and these are smart people. They've built a very successful business, but you know, COVID hits in March and it takes them until June to think about, well, wait a minute, what are the long-term implications if we're holding Zoom meetings with our staff every day and work is getting done? Do we really need to sign a lease for a brand new office space? And they haven't. Right, and I have often asked, you know, how many companies have actually, you know, revisited their, their risk profiles and done a, a reassessment of the risk immediately um, you know, following the, the first incident of, you know, the impact of COVID and actually realizing it now, uh, keeping an eye on emerging risk, that is something you have to do 24 seven. It's not something you have to put off to the next quarterly review or quarterly meeting with leadership. It's a live conversation that needs to be had. So just to close out, any, any, um, last thoughts you want to leave our audience in terms of strategic risk management? So, um, yeah, I think the principle, we're all used to the principle of uncertainty absorption because we like to live stable, secure lives. But if we look around us, we see all kinds of uncertainty. So what we have to do is we have to really fight that tendency to want to absorb uncertainty. We want to, we have to really fight that tendency. All of us right now, we have to fight the tendency to say, well, by September 1st, COVID will for sure be gone. Um, you know, I've done some modeling that if we if we took 100,000 new cases a day, it would take us three and a half years to get to herd immunity. Um, that well, changes your paradigm and mm -hmm. that makes you a lot more willing to say, I better deal with uncertainty head on instead of trying to pretend it doesn't exist. And what we've tried to do in our book is give people a set of tools to think systematically about uncertainty. But that would be my big advice to people is, you better embrace uncertainty because it's going to be with us for a long time. Yeah, it's something you have to live with and it's part of what we do. It's, uncertainty just didn't show up with COVID. It was always here. We yep. just didn't manage it effectively. <laughs> yep. uh, right? We didn't manage and, it effectively. And COVID just magnified it. Fight it, yeah. But now you, know, now you have to deal with it, so don't run away. Excellent. So where can people find information uh, about the book and about yourself? So um, you can go to strategicriskinsights.com and learn a little bit about our organization and a little bit about me. You can find our book on Amazon. It's probably the best place. 
strategic risk management, new tools for um, competitive advantage in an uncertain age. It's easy to find on Amazon and, and uh, we'd love to have more people read it. And we'd love your feedback on the book as well. Excellent, Dr. Godfrey. I want to really thank you for being here today. My audience appreciated it. I enjoyed our conversation. I feel like we're just adding more relevance and information and content through Flip This Risk podcast to help educate people about risk management at all levels. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Karen. What a wonderful time it's been. Thank you, everyone, for watching Flip This Risk. I'm Dr. Karen Hardy, and I'll catch you next time.